certainly nice to be with you, brethren, bring you greetings from the brethren in Brazelton in Georgia, with whom we were keeping the Sabbath last week. It's always interesting going back to some of these outlying churches to see the growth and the development, and uh, Brazelton is almost pushing the limit on its hall these days. So uh, they had a record attendance last week, or a new record. I guess every record's a record, so they established a new record uh, in terms of attendance last week, and that's encouraging to see. And, of course, one, one of the interesting things about going out to the outlying churches is you come back here and you see people you've never met before. So there must be something called growth occurring here as well. So... Uh, it is a delight to be with you, whether I know you or not, and be able to spend the Sabbath with you. This evening at sunset begins the 14th day of Adar, the 12th month of the Hebrew calendar, which is important for two very distinct reasons. Firstly, the 14th of Adar is exactly one month before the 14th of Nisan. And you know what happens on the 14th of Nisan. We keep the Passover. It is also important because the 14th of Adar is a festival of Purim, on which, which is the focus of the book of Esther within God's word. So whenever Purim comes around, there's exactly one month to go to the Passover. I'm not going to talk necessarily about Esther today, but I do want to speak about the Passover. I do want to focus your minds on something that Jesus Christ said in that last Passover meal that he had with his disciples before he was taken out to be betrayed and crucified, and become our Passover lamb. But before we look at what Jesus Christ said, I want to look at a problem that we bring in our own discussions about what Jesus Christ said. And I want to do it from a book of very great deep philosophy, a book written for a little girl by a father, a girl called Alice. And she had a book entitled Through the Looking Glass. And in chapter 6, we find Alice involved in great discussion with none other than Humpty Dumpty. Now, of course, this obviously had to be before his great fall. And I think we can read into what Humpty Dumpty says why he had a great fall. Okay, so these things are, you might say, inherent in the text. But in having this discussion between Alice and Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty said, when I use a word, I'm supposed to say that in a more scornful tone, when I use a word, said Humpty Dumpty in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. To which Alice responded, The question is, said Alice, 
whether you can make words mean so many different things. To which Humpty Dumpty replied, the question is, says Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. Now you might say, word games. Maybe. But there is a truism on both of accounts that both Humpty Dumpty was making and that Alice was making. Words can mean different things, as Alice suggested, leading to confusion. We talk about Britain and the United States being two countries separated by a common language. Okay, for the English in the audience, I hope you understand me this afternoon. Jamie. If we examine the applications of words in a dictionary, such as the Oxford English Dictionary, you find that many common words have a variety of applications far beyond what we would normally accept. Some, over a period of centuries, have reversed their meaning or taken on a radically different application. Now, most of you are probably not that readily acquainted with the Oxford English Dictionary. It is to the world of dictionaries what Strong's exhaustive concordance is to the Bible compared with, say, Cruden's concordance or the thing that you may find occupying a few pages at the back of your Bible. A very exhaustive dictionary of the English language, now available online, but otherwise you've got to buy about 20 volumes of it. You can get a two-volume uh, edition from Amazon with a very powerful magnifying glass so that you can read it. So I'd like to introduce a word. What do we understand by the word friend? I ask this because this is a word that encompasses a vast range of meanings and applications. And just to give you an idea, the Oxford English Dictionary provides 13 applications of the term in its online edition. Merriam-Webster's provides five different applications of this term. Now, rather interestingly, in the variety of usages, the term friend has created misunderstanding in the church before today. I remember back in the 1970s, Mr. Armstrong was visiting world leaders, and he would write that he was a friend of a particular world leader, let's say Haile Selassie, the emperor at that point of time of Ethiopia. Or another personage of note, who he had only met on maybe one occasion. In so doing, in describing this person as a friend, Mr. Armstrong was using the uh, idea of an acquaintance. This person was an acquaintance of mine, which is, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, an appropriate understanding of what the word friend can mean. It's a permissible usage of the term friend. 
Of course, the people who questioned this, how can you be a friend of a person after only one meeting, hadn't consulted the Oxford English Dictionary before they did so, because they thought a friend was a confidant, someone whom you shared your innermost feelings with. And how do you do that with a person after you've only met them on one occasion? Well, they were primarily British brethren. At that point in time, as I remember, at least the ones I heard of, because I was involved with the church in Britain and so forth at that time. But I want to give you an idea of some of the challenges we have, because we talk about Friends Day. It's diluted by a thing called Facebook. I can be asked to befriend someone. And friend simply means I have clicked on the accept button. Right? I had saw one lament from uh, one of our brethren in Africa the other day who uh, obviously is somewhat new to Facebook. And he said, I've got all of these friends and no one wants to talk to me. Okay, so what do we talk about in terms of friends? So we all end up with friends who we have never met, and short of the, 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 the kingdom of God, we may not be likely to meet them and shake their hand and uh, learn how to pronounce their name correctly, this side of the kingdom of God. So today, we find people can be a friend of the animate and the inanimate. We can become the friends of the earth. Tree huggers, as we call them in Britain. Uh, we can be a friend of the uh, British Museum. Go up there to those great big stone, Portland stone pillars that hold up the edifice. Give it a big hug. I'm a friend. No, they actually want you to give them five pound or twenty pound so that uh, you can be classified as a friend. All right, so we have this word friend. What does it mean? To a large extent, it depends on what you want to make it mean. You're Humpty Dumpty, aren't you? You can be friends in a Facebook style, or you can be friends of a different ilk, as the case may be. So what did Jesus Christ really seek to convey in the expression of being a friend of God or of the Son, Jesus Christ? What does it mean? Does he want us to get different meanings based upon whatever we bring to the discussion? Does he want us to be in charge of deciding what it means to be a friend? Why is it important? I would say this is very important, brethren, because Jesus Christ used this idea of friendship as a definition of our relationship with our Heavenly Father and His Son. So it defines a relationship we have together. 
It's not a Facebook relationship. In so doing, in understanding it, it will influence the way in which we pray. Because if you're praying to someone who you perceive to be a friend, how is that going to differ from someone who you wonder, does he have any interest in me? So understanding this aspect of being a friend of God changes the way in which we relate. The way we pray, the way we communicate, the way we act within that friendship, including the Passover. It is a way, it is in a way an added means of understanding our relationship with the God family. We may see ourselves as begotten sons of God, but it's a sad commentary on this world in which we live that family oftentimes is not a comfortable relationship because of abuse. Anyone who's been in the ministry can attest to that. You see just how endemic abuse in families can be. And as a result of that, people can want to, well, I'm not sure about a family, a family relationship. So many people don't see a family as a loving, caring, nurturing relationship the eternal desires to have with us. So the eternal, the Father in his wisdom, has used other analogies to convey the intensity of feeling uh, that he and the care and concern that the father and his son desire to have with their people. So that no one's left out. He can be our shepherd. He can be our rock. Something we can depend on. Means that convey that support, care, and relationship he desires to have with us. So I put it to you, brethren, that this idea of friendship is an expression of that desire as well. But it has an application to us as a community of people as well. Because if we are going to be friends of God, what does it say about our relationship to one another. We have to be friends also, right? We have to be committed to that. Many have developed what I would consider to be very good friendships over the years of being in the church. I've seen that. Sometimes they're more obvious and more apparent than others. Families are very close to one another. But as a minister, I've often been surprised by those unknown friendships where people have gone out of their way to try and take care of maybe a less fortunate member in the church. They've done it, you might say, below the radar because they're not wanting to make blow their trumpet about it. They're seeking to help somebody. They see a need. 
They see the responsibility they have as an individual, as part of a family of God, to help that individual and go out of their way to do so. And I've been surprised and I've been very warmed by the way in which people have done that. Because that is the way of God in action. Being responsible for one another in that way. And I also understand as well the way in which some people can so easily slip between the cracks. I remember one man that I was counseling with and I came to realize he had lost his best friend in the church. And he was his only friend in the church. And that had a profound effect on him. Very, very much so. So we have a responsibility as people. Now, I would say this. I would say this is something that I've observed as well in terms of a ministry, where oftentimes there are no real deep friendships. Deep friendships are a rarity. There may be camaraderie, yes, but because of the nature of the job and the transient nature of where we are, or peripatetic nature of the ministry, oftentimes we don't develop the friendships that we should do. So I don't speak to you as an authority on friendship today. But I speak to you as someone who is seeking to come to understand what Jesus Christ is desiring to have with you and me. Obviously, a starting point with this is James chapter 2. James, the brother of Jesus Christ, in chapter 2 talks about Abraham. We come down to the end of a chapter, and he makes a wonderful statement about Abraham. I believe if I remember correctly, I gave a sermonette on this many, many years ago. And I wished I could remember what I said. But then it was probably irrelevant. Little did I know what it was saying. Verse 23, it said, The scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So Abraham was called the friend of God. A wonderful statement to make. Friends of God. James was not making a new comment about Abraham here. He was stating what had already been established in Scripture. But in making that claim and restating that claim, he used the same Greek term that John has used in his gospel to encompass the idea of friendship that Christ spoke about with his disciples. So let's turn to John chapter 15, the section of Scripture that we read of the Passover every year as we conduct the Passover, or as we take the Passover. John chapter 15, and we're going to read from verses 12 through 17. 
Now, of course, John chapter 15 starts with a different analogy. It talks about Jesus Christ being the vine and the father of the husbandmen, and we are the branches, and we are to bring forth much fruit. And that concept of bearing much fruit is conveyed in this section as well. But he starts in verse 12, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this is a restatement, isn't it, of John 13, verse 34, which we read of the very early part of the uh, uh, section of John 13 through 17. So a restatement is given here. My commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Giving of yourself for others is the greatest form of love possible. Now I'd like to take a moment just to give a little bit of a Greek lesson here. Because in verse 13, we have the use of a noun, agape, A-G-A-P-E, if we were to transliterate it to English. In verse 12, we have the verb derived from the same noun, agapeo. Verse 13, love, as a noun. Interestingly, in the Greek language, prior to the time of the New Testament, the noun literally never appears. It is unknown. Some commentators think, or some lexicos, lex, lex, lexicographers, excuse me, consider, well, maybe this was not appropriate speech and was excluded from the Greek language. The verb appears frequently, but the noun Almost never. Yet in the New Testament, it appears 116 times. And 28 of those are in John's writings. So John is very focused upon this aspect of agape. So he said, greater love, greater agape has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. But whatsoever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I've command, I command you, that you love one another. So Jesus presents some essential elements of being a friend in this verse. Firstly, he starts by talking about love, agape, as the basis for friendship. It is the giving of oneself, total giving of oneself, for the benefit of others. This, of course, immediately denies the, uh, the simplicity of being an acquaintance and creates a sense of deep community, deep attachment 
a very profound way. It is one based on outgoing concern for another, greater than just brotherly love to the point of being willing to give one's life for the other. In fact, a case could be made that Jesus has in this verse of this section redefined the element of friendship by these statements. Why do I say that? Because the Greek word for translated friend, as in James chapter 2 and verse 23, and as used here in John chapter 15, is a word philos, P-H-I-L-O-S. And I think most of you can appreciate that that is related to philia, from which we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. So the idea of friendship was associated with the idea of brotherly attachment and relationship. But Jesus defined it in terms of agape. You are my friends. Well, he said greater love, greater agape has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So uh, we have uh, this aspect of redefining what friendship really means. So the very first point that we need to bear in mind of friendship is it's based on godly love. This thing which you might say is unique to the Greek writings of the New Testament defined by the noun agape. And we'll return to that aspect of love as the center of friendship shortly. A second point that needs to be borne in mind. Friendship requires a renouncement of everything else. We notice verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. There is only one way to live. You can't have a foot in both camps. That is a negation of the idea of being a friend. You can't be a friend that way. We'll see that uh, very clearly in terms of that, in, in terms of James' writing. Perhaps the most powerful point, the most powerful scripture to focus our minds on this renouncement of everything else is recorded by John in John chapter 19 and verse 12. Jesus Christ at this point in time is before Pilate, the governor. And of course, Pilate realized that, look, these boys are playing dirty and nasty. This is nothing that Rome has to be involved in. At least he thought. Didn't realize how much it related to him. One of these days he will. But he thought this is a local spat, and these guys are fighting over turf, etc., etc. In verse 12 he said, from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. He realized this, this wasn't something that Rome had to get involved in. But the Jews cried out, saying, 
If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Friendship with the Caesar was essential to remain your governor's seat. You lose the trust of the Caesar, and what happens? You may find your head being raised from your shoulders. And you may find them reunited in a sarcophagus. You won't be governor much longer. As John continues, whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Okay, you want to be a friend of Caesar's, you can't befriend this guy. It's all or nothing. It is a total way of life. It's not an either or, it is an either or situation, should I say. It's a for or against situation. There's no middle ground that you can occupy. There's no possibility here of loving Jesus Christ and the world at the same time, which, of course, is a point that James makes a little later in his chapter. James chapter 4. Now, when James chapter 4, in James in chapter 4, talks about the people and the conduct of the people, he's talking about people like you and me who want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But because of our own weaknesses and because of a lack of maybe God's Holy Spirit in our lives or the lack of vision on our part, we allow ourselves to be distracted into the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. James chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Now, these are people who would have heard the comments that John records in his gospel about being a friend of Jesus Christ. But he said, you can't be a friend of this world because that is a state of hostility to Jesus Christ. A very powerful statement for us to bear in mind. Previous chapter but 1 and chapter 2, he introduced us to Abraham as being a man who was a friend of God. What does it say about Abraham? He was totally committed to God's way of life. Totally committed to it in a remarkable way. But now he's telling the church, that if we want to be the friend of this world, we make ourselves an enemy of God. He said in verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The Eternal Father wants us to have a relationship with Him. And He's upset if we allow our relationship to drift off somewhere else. That's not friendship. Friendship is a level of commitment, unquestioned commitment to that way of life. The Father wants His Spirit 
to interact with the human spirit within us. And he doesn't want that human spirit to interact with this world. It is a battle of the worlds that we're involved in. We may not consider our lives in that way, but we need to. I mentioned the Feast of Purim occurring tonight, tomorrow, until tomorrow's sunset. One of the great lessons out of the book of Esther is that Mordecai and Esther both sought the friendship of the eternal and not of the world. Whatever the situation, they were willing to obey God. It's implicit in how they respond to every situation they find themselves in. What does God require of me? They were, you might say, friends of God. Whatever the situation, they obeyed God's word rather than seeking to avoid the penalties the world was going to throw at them. Let the eternal deliver us in a very powerful way. So when Paul speaks to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, of taking the Passover in a worthy manner, we have here a definition of what it means to be worthy. How am I truly a friend of God? Am I truly committed to his way of life? of having his spirit guide me and direct me in a very powerful way. So we can ask ourselves a question in terms of, am I worthy? By simply asking, who is my friend? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the world? Or maybe we need to rephrase that and say, who are my friends with? Jesus Christ or the world? Because bear in mind, if we try and make it Jesus Christ and the world, Jesus Christ has said, forget it. You're not there. You're a friend of the world. There's no middle ground in terms of it. So this aspect of being uh, friendship requiring a renouncement of everything else is very, very important for us to bear in mind. Very important to bear in mind in terms of keeping the Passover. Third aspect of friendship that comes out of these words of Jesus Christ is that friendship is revealing. You go back there to uh, verse uh, 15. He said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. So this aspect of uh, being revealing is very important. There are no secrets, so to speak. No areas of life that are off limits. Jesus Christ wants to make his father's purpose, or his father's purposes, plain to us so that we understand where he is going. What is purposed for humanity? Why are we here? That great question that no one really has an answer to. 
What's it all about? He wants us to understand that. It's one of those incredible things of understanding the way of God. I can remember when I went to Ambassador College and sat in Bible classes and sort of like a sponge soaked it all up. And I look over the years and I look at those with whom I breathed the air in that classroom. Listened to the same teacher. Read from the same book. And for some of them, it didn't seem to reveal anything. It is one of those incredible things that we understand, that we appreciate. You're here because you appreciate what has been revealed to you by Jesus Christ as a result of his desire to have a friendship with us. And that's a very powerful thing to understand. The eternal has revealed this to us. So as I said, Jesus Christ wants to make his father's purposes clear to us so that we can understand where he is going, what is purpose for humanity. And we keep the holy days for that purpose, right? We understand these things. Of course, the same was true for Abraham. If he was a friend of God, that meant the eternal revealed things to him, correct? About his plan and purpose. Genesis chapter 16, excuse me, Genesis chapter 18. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. This was the occasion on which the eternal and the angels appeared to Abram on the plains of Mamre. And the promise was given of Isaac to be born uh, in a year's time. And they were, of course, the, the eternal and the angels were on their way to see what the situation was in Sodom and Gomorrah. You might say it's not too much different setting, is it, from the world in which we live today? In chapter 18 and verse 16, the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Am I going to hide my purposes? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the eternal to do righteousness and justice, that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he's spoken to him. Why should I not let Abraham in on what our plans are? He's my friend. He's committed to my way of life. Totally committed. A remarkable way of expressing it here by the eternal. And so the eternal told him, verse 20, because, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grave, I will go down and now and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, of course, we don't need to read the rest of the chapter because you know what happened. Because Abraham then went into a discussion. Well, there are 50 righteous people. Will you save it? And the eternal said, yes. 
In other words, not only was a revealing, but was a revealing of intent and so forth here in quite a remarkable way. And Abraham and the Eternal could discuss his plans and the implications of his plans in a remarkable way. Abraham, as a friend of God, was informed about what was going to happen. And not just on this one occasion. The Apostle Paul notes that Abraham looked for the new Jerusalem, a city without foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We don't don't read where that was revealed to him. But if that was revealed to him, if the new Jerusalem was revealed to him, what else about the steps along the line to get there was revealed to Abraham as well? Eternal laid out his plan, his purpose for humanity in a remarkable way. It's not necessarily recorded for us, but certainly the Apostle Paul understood it. So if he understood about the new Jerusalem, what else about the plan of God was he told? I think a great deal. A great deal. The psalmist also appreciated this element of the friendship of God, even although David is never referenced throughout Scripture as being a friend of God. It certainly can be inferred from the way in which he was dealt with by the eternal. Notice Psalm 25. Psalm 25 and verse 12. Who is the man that fears the eternal, has the right respect for the eternal? Where was it that Jesus Christ established friendship? You will do whatever I command you. The person who does God's command has that sense of fear or respect for the eternal. So who is the man who fears the eternal? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He is going to be taught the way of life. You have the right respect for the eternal. You obey the eternal as he desires to be obeyed. He's going to teach you. Part of a revealing nature of a friendship. He himself will dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. And so he said the secret of the eternal is with those who fear him. You know, what did Jesus say? You're no longer servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. You just do what you're told. You don't have input on the plans. Okay? But friends have input like Abraham. And so here David said, the secret of the eternal is with those who fear him. They know where the eternal is going been revealed to them, made clear to them, and he will show them his covenant. And so the psalmist finished there in verse 15 by saying, my eyes are ever toward the eternal, for he will pluck my feet out of a net. He will take care of me. I don't have to worry about these things because I'm reliant on him. He's my friend. He can take care of me in a remarkable way. Of course, most of us would remember Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, 
in terms of this aspect of revealing, where Amos recorded for us that surely the eternal God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to the servants, the prophets. You and I, brethren, have access to this knowledge as well. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we have uh, some wonderful statements here. Let's pick it up in verse 6. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by various trials. We have trials. But the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've not seen him, but we love him. We have this relationship. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, he said, of his salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to us. We put it in the present tense. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us, you and me sitting in this room. To us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Things, he said, which angels desire to look into. See, Jesus Christ wants to share this with us. This is things that the angels get excited about apparently as well. Does it excite us to the same degree? Do we really see the plan of God and his purposes as being the real, ultimate solution to the problems humanity faces? We have to, don't we? We have to be totally committed to that. Jesus Christ wants us to appreciate that with him, just as the Father does as well. Just, you might say, as the angelic hosts do as well. Let me put it in a context for you in terms of revelation. Today, and I speak in terms of 2017 rather than the 11th of March, Today, in the 21st century, a lot more Christians keep the Feast of Tabernacles than when I first heard about the church in 1962 or thereabouts. I would say a lot more Christians are concerned about the Feast of Tabernacles than was the case in, say, the mid-1980s. It is a fashion in certain forms of churches to now keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Not necessarily in the way we do, but each year of the Feast of Tabernacles, 
8,000 to 10,000 Christians descend on Jerusalem to keep the feast. Actually, they far far outnumber the uh, Jews who are in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles by a big way. Of course, everyone in Jerusalem is very happy to see these eight to 10,000 people coming for the Feast of Tabernacles. The cash register is ringing quite nicely, thank you. Yet those people have no inkling of the plan of God. Absolutely no understanding of it whatsoever. They spend their time in Jerusalem trying to win Jews for Jesus. Which tells you they have no understanding that this is not the only day of salvation. They're on a mission. They're going to save everybody before Jesus Christ returns or else they've failed. They don't understand the plan of God. Now, it's great because maybe God can work with their knowledge of the Feast of Tabernacles at some point in bringing them to repentance. That's great. But at this point in time, they're not really part of the friends. They don't understand the purpose or how humanity is going to be brought to repentance. So we've been given an insight into the plan of God that so many other people do not have. As devout and as keen and as diligent as they might be. So we go to the feast, or as we keep the feast days, we should not forget that. We are here before the eternal because of that desire to be a friend of the God family and the friendship that the God family wishes to have with us, ultimately enabling us to become part of the family. And we don't know everything. Even Jesus Christ does not know everything. He does not even know the exact time of his return. Now, I realize this, that somebody else has worked it out for him, and Jesus Christ eventually will catch up with that person and come to understand what he's supposed to be doing. I speak as a fool. I don't know how many churches I've been into before today, and someone sitting at the back sort of susses you out afterwards and said, I've worked out when Jesus Christ is returning. He thought, have you read the New Testament? What are you spending your time on? Okay. So not everything necessarily is made known from the Father to Jesus Christ, and maybe the Father hasn't come to the exact timing of when it's going to be. I would say that would surprise me of the case, but Jesus Christ doesn't know it hasn't been made known to us as a result. This brings us to the next point, I'd say the fourth point on friendship, and that is trust. There are two two elements here, because trust is a true two-way street, isn't it? How do we handle ourselves towards our friend? Is our behavior representative of a friendship, or does it undermine that friendship? We were in 1 Peter chapter 1, so... 
Let's go down a few verses to verse 13. Because verses 13 to 16 tell us what the God family requires from us as a part of a friendship. They want us to build godly character so that we can remain for all eternity. And so verse 13 says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to your former lusts, as in your ignorance, not doing what James was correcting the church over, right? Becoming friends of the world, but be remaining true to the calling and doing what Jesus Christ has commanded us. He said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. What is my response? What is my trustful response to Jesus Christ and the Father as a result of being called into this friendship to be holy. And you can't do that by being a friend of the world, as we've already established. The Father and Jesus Christ have initiated our friendship, and they expect us to live up to that friendship. They expect that without question. The other element of, tr of, of trust in friendship is that of confidences. The greatest destroyer of friendships in the physical realm is a breach of trust or confidence. Someone betrays a confidence and the trust is broken and the friendship irreparable. I guess most of us have experienced something of that nature within our lives, either first-hand or second-hand. It is painful, isn't it? How does the father handle confidence or confidences? One of the most surprising points to consider is that our father and his son keep confidences. We might think initially that he doesn't. Look at all of the warts of those included in the Bible. You might consider the case of Abram and his foibles and challenge my statement. But let me outline something for you. The only problems the eternal highlights about Abraham are those that were public knowledge. Okay, case in point. The whole Egyptian court knew about the situation of Abraham and Sarai and of Pharaoh. Likewise with Abimelech. Yeah, the court had to tell the Pharaoh, get this man and his wife and servants out of the land. This was, a, you might say, a national crisis. So the eternal isn't necessarily uh, lifting the curtain on a, a less than salubrious part of Abraham's life. All of Egypt knew about it. The same with Abimelech. 
Even the problem of Hagar was known because she left Abram, Abraham and those she went to live amongst would have been aware of the situation. Hagar possibly went back to her father's house and had to explain, back to Egypt. And everyone started connecting the dots. Uh, this is the guy we had to throw out. Does the eternal betray any inner confidences of Abraham? I don't think so. We may try and analyze Abraham in part with the knowledge at our disposal. But we've got pretty slim pickings, haven't we? He lived 165 years, of which 95 years are encapsulated in 12 chapters. How much do we really know about Abraham's life? We know how the Eternal saw him at the end. Faithful. Dedicated to his way of life. A man who the Eternal could say is my friend. That's what we really know. Not much else to know. I think the same scenario can be set up for all of the other patriarchs and people with whom the eternal worked. Paul later expounded the point to Timothy when he stated in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 24 through 25, where he said, some men's sins are clearly evident. Abraham in the Pharaoh's court, David with Bathsheba. You know, how do you cover them? They are so public. The eternal is not destroying any confidences there. David let it all hang out, so to speak. Abraham did as well. What about Paul himself? He made no bones about it, did he? He classified himself as being the worst of sinners because he blasphemed, because he tried to destroy those who wanted to be the friends of God. Very open about it. The record was open about it. Everyone knew about it. So Paul said to Timothy, he said, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. Take me as an example, Timothy. But he said, some of those of some men follow after. He said, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So good works are seen, not because we trumpet them ourselves, but our friend makes sure that I, they become obvious. The last point I would like to draw to your attention on this aspect of being a friend of God also points to the very nature of a relationship. Jesus also stated that whatever we ask the Father in his name, he may give you. It's not a dogmatic will give, but a conditional may give. And it's a sign of friendship. It may not be within the immediate power of a friend to give, or the friend may realize that it would be counterproductive to our life and our spiritual development. Because sometimes we may want things. The eternal says, no, you don't want that. You don't want to go there. 
Let me keep you from it. Let me save you from yourself. Notice Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. He talks about how the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Great chapter dealing with the uh, Holy Spirit. He says, we do not know how we should pray for as we ought. What is it? We may be praying for various things. We may be wanting a particular person to be called into God's church. We may be wanting the gospel to be preached in a particular area. And the eternal says, I want over here, please. I want somewhere else. I want He said, the spirit itself, itself, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We may have all the enthusiasm, the desire, but oftentimes we don't necessarily see it in terms of God's plan and his purposes, the way in which he sees it. And so he helps it to be directed. Verse 27, now he who searches the heart, who searches the heart? Jesus Christ knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Right? So Jesus Christ makes intercession according to the will of God, not necessarily our wants, as as he understands the Father's great purposes. And he said in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul's statement about this aspect of prayer, and the way in which we relate to the heavenly family, reminds me of a clipping of a quote that my father gave me as a teen. It was a quote I eventually found came from a uh, 19th century novel entitled A Life for a Life. It's oftentimes attributed to George Eliot, but it was actually written by another writer of the 19th century. And this person said, a friend is one to whom one may pour out the contents of one's heart, chaff and grain together, knowing that gentle hands will take and sift it. Keep what is worth keeping, and with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. We have a friend who will do that for us, who can sift what we say and keep what is of value, what is within the eternal's plan. The book of Proverbs, chapter 27 and verses 5 and 6 says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And it said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the corrections that a friend may give. So the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Don't trust them. So I ask you, brethren, how does this impact our ideas of our relationship with the father and his son? How does it shape our ability to pray. 
in what way are we going to keep the Passover? As a friend, very important for us to consider. They said if we'd return to the idea of friendship and love that I mentioned earlier, the very first point. James, in calling Abraham a friend of God, was quoting from Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 41, verse 8. Both books written in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word for friend is ocheb. O-H-E-B, if we transliterate it into English, O-H-E-B. E-H-E-B is the Hebrew word for love. Thou shalt love, Echev, the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your mind. E-H-E-B. We're using the same root. We've changed the vowel at the beginning. You might try placing an A in front of the word instead of the O or the E and making the middle vowel an A as well. And what do you have? You have a proper name of one of the most despotic kings of Israel, Ahab. Do you know what Ahab means? Lover boy. Seventy sons, and how many daughters did he have as well? Okay, so you see this semantic range we're playing with here. We've got a root that can mean friendship. It can be modified to mean friendship. It can mean love, or it can be a lover boy, if you wish, Ahab. The Hebrew word Oheb, O-H-E-B, is used in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. Verse 6. In verse 4, Moses recorded the words of the Eternal when he said, Thou shalt not make for yourself a graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or anything that is in the water under the earth. You're not to bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the eternal, your God, am a jealous God. So once again, we get this idea of jealousy and friendship that we read about in James chapter 4, reiterated for us, or established for us, better in Exodus chapter 20. He said, I'm the eternal, your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. And then in verse 6, if you don't hate a person, what do you do? You love. Or more specifically, you are a friend. Verse 6, showing mercy to thousands of those who love me. Oheb, who are my friends, and keep my commandments. So we come right back to where Jesus Christ started in the Passover service. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. The very first requirement 
of friendship is obedience. It's rather interesting to look at this word of the Hebrew. One of the Hebrew dictionaries makes this comment on the word ochev. It said, one who loves, i.e., one who actively seeks association, relationship, and friendship in covenant relationship, which may include feelings of affection. That brings us right back to the point Jesus Christ was making with the disciples in John chapter 15, where we really started, isn't it? Having taken of the new covenant emblems of the Passover, the disciples have been invited into a new covenant relationship, into a new covenant friendship, the ultimate expression of friendship is then a realization of the new covenant relationship into which we have been invited. We have been invited individually and collectively into that relationship. It requires something of us. It requires a level of commitment on our part. A commitment that Jesus Christ is showing he is more than willing and has been more than willing to measure up to by being prepared to give his life for you and me, for all of God's people. You might say in terms of the community of the church, what does it say about our relationship one towards another? We should be friends in the same relationship, one with the other as we are with the Father and the Son. It should shape our relationships one to another. And we can discuss those things at a future period of time. So, brethren, as of sunset tonight, we have one month to prepare for the Passover to determine whether we are truly prepared to be a friend of Jesus Christ and the Father, or whether we are going to be a friend of the world. You can't play it both ways. It's either or. I know where I want to be. See you there.